Uh, well, thank you, Greg uh, and Ben, for leading us uh, in worship this morning. Uh, happy Mother's Day as well to all of you who are in that category, um, and my love uh, to all women here, especially with the varying stories that you have uh, on that. Well, um, my wife and I asked uh, maybe two weeks ago, we had the chance to use some airline vouchers that were set to expire. And so we took a trip down to Charleston, South Carolina. I don't know if any of you all have been there before or not, but I want to take you there with me just for a second this morning. We had never been there, and again, we had these airline vouchers from a bad experience before. You know how that works with the airline. Something goes bad, they're like, hey, try our bad service again, see if it's any better. So that's what we did, and we went down to Charleston, and, and uh, the biggest cost was actually just parking at the airport. So we went down, we had a day down there, it was a beautiful day, and we went down there. I don't, so I don't know if you're into this kind of thing, but we enjoyed a day just walking around, just the two of us enjoying that. We went down a um, very historic city um, with actually ties to Barbados, where I grew up as a missionary kid, which was very interesting to see. So, you know, walk by these homes with, you know, archways, the vines over them and, you know, uh, gardens everywhere. There's, you know, these beautifully manicured homes uh, restored with, uh, you know, detail everywhere. All these flower boxes, I guess they're called, that are, that are right there in the city as you're walking through downtown, south abroad, they call it just a beautiful area. Cobbled streets, you know, and uh, historic homes and, you know, everything is just right. And aren't you glad you came to church for my personal slideshow, my personal vacation, right? At some point in the day, we turned the corner to um, taking a tour of, an, of a historic home. The home was the Nathaniel, let me get this right, Nathaniel Russell House, built in 1808. This was inside the, the home and we did this. Nathaniel Russell was one of the most wealthy people in Charleston. And as we toured his home, uh, it was beautiful. I mean, uh, everything so far has been really beautiful, to be honest with you. We really enjoyed the whole day. We enjoyed just being together. We enjoyed the, the architecture, the gardens, the flowers, um, the, clearly the, the historic wealth of Charleston was on display, just straight up when you're walking down the street everywhere. This ancient home, you know, again, built 1808. When we finally got up to the second of three floors, we saw this place here. This is evidently their, uh, this is where their PS4 would have gone if they would have had a PS4 in 1808. This was like the rec room, okay? This was what you did when you had some free time. You would come here and sit and play music. Now, if you like PS4, this may not quite be the translation of the current day to past day, but this is, this is where they would come and retire for the evening. And you knew you were wealthy if you had a home like this and a space like this in your, in your home. And as we were taking a self-guided tour of the Nathaniel Russell house, my wife and I had on those, um, if, you, if you're old enough to remember a Walkman, we had what almost was like a Walkman with us, which was like a little, actually it was a little old iPod and then headphone line physically run into that with plastic blue, like foam-based earphones over top of us. So we looked a little funny, but we're standing there in this room hearing about the wealth of Nathaniel Russell and where he built it from. And here we hear that it's one of the primary reasons, if not the primary reason why he made so much money was because he sold slaves. And he realized that he could make five times as much per slave as anything else that he could do. And I'm standing there in this home and they're telling us that these windows right here, if you were to look out these windows into the gardens, this is where they would keep track of their slaves to make sure that they were doing what they're supposed to be doing. And it was in that moment that I felt this tension. And the question kind of rose up in me is like, should I now still enjoy the beauty of what I'm seeing? 
or does the badness and evil of injustice make what I'm seeing something I shouldn't enjoy anymore? Like, what, what, do, I, what do I do with that tension of realizing that, quite honestly, this home wouldn't have existed if it wasn't for injustice and evil? Not like this. But yet, I'm still standing there, and I've got to be honest, it's beautiful. And so what do I do? And I stand there realizing, you know what? <laughs> in many ways, Charleston is in all of us. Charleston is all of us. The good and the bad, the evil and the righteousness, the light and the dark is my story. It's in me. I think it's maybe in you. And I know certainly that it's in our world. And as I began preparing even for this message this morning in this series that I'm in called The Greatest, which is not the greatest message series, by the way. It's the greatest of these is love. At the end, all this remains faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. It's a series on the greatest we can pursue, which is love. I began asking the question, what does love have to do with this space? How can love help me in this space? And here's what I came to conclude, and not just me, but I think it's in the scripture as well, and I want to take you there in a second, that love pursues truth no matter how difficult. That love pursues truth no matter how difficult. That the full truth of the Charleston experience is what love demands that I cover no matter how difficult it is. Now, this is a, an idea that I want to kind of bring up from the truth of the Scriptures uh, with you. And so I want to invite you to turn with me, if you have your Bible, to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to look at just one verse. If you don't own a Bible, there's a Bible in the chair near you, by the way. Uh, but 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is in the right two-thirds of your Bible, uh, or you can open it up on your phone or your device. And Paul is writing a letter here to the ancient church, to the early church, about what it looks like for them to function well together. Just coming off of a passage about spiritual gifts, about how to work well together, now he's talking about how do we love well together, indicating that it's more important that we love each other well than we just all know how each other is wired and how each other's strengths will serve each other well. And he makes just this one comment in chapter 6, in chapter 13, verse 6, excuse me. And this is really all that I'm going to read from the text this morning. And so in a way, before I read that, in a way, as I was thinking about this message, this message is really almost an extended application, not what I might call an exposition, which is a bigger term for really mining the text with other texts and telling the history and the story of it truthfully. Your experience this morning will be, I think, more of an extended application and questions around this singular idea of verse 6. Let me read it here as you follow along. I'm reading from the NIV. He says, Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Simple idea, right? Simple idea. Love doesn't delight in evil. So whatever is evil, love says, I'm not for that. And whatever is truth, love rejoices in. Now, I'll be honest, like that works, that works for children. But I'm looking at just a few children, but most of the people I'm looking at are not children. So here's the deal. When I was a kid, I would play cops and robbers. Anyone ever play that? Yeah? Yeah. I, I would also play... Uh, well, this was back in the day. I would also play cowboys and Indians, and you don't play that anymore uh, for, for good reason, right? But we're playing cops and robbers. It was pretty clear, right? The, the cops are definitely the good guys, clearly. 
the robbers are definitely the bad guys, right? And then you get older and you realize, well, not every robber is robbing for bad reasons. If you're an adult. And not every cop is good and righteous and perfect, right? And it, the lines start to begin to be blurred and not, not making a commentary on anything else other than to say things can get complicated. That what is good and what actually is bad? And I begin to look in the mirror at myself and I say, well, certainly I want to be good and right, right? Like this principle is so simple. Love doesn't delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. But let me ask you, can you always distinguish what is evil and what is true? Have you ever stood in Charleston like I have in your own heart and said, man, I'm stuck here because I know that I am both patient and impatient at the same time. Your experience with me might be one who offers great, uh, generous grace to you. And the person next to you might have felt like last week, he was very judgmental and hypocritical, which is true of me. The answer is probably both. Because there are seasons when I am this and seasons when I am that, and both exist in my heart at least at the same time. Which, which is it for your teacher, for your boss, for your leaders? Are they good or are they bad? To the world in which we live in, depends on our, our, where our children even grow up, right? Our children in the United States of America may grow up now and looking at Russia and saying certainly they're the enemy and they're evil, right? But children in Russia may grow up looking at the U.S. and saying, well, they're the ones who caused all this conflict to begin with. They're the ones who are evil. The world is incredibly complex when it comes to which is right and which is wrong, what is evil and what is good. But love, 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 I would like to argue from this text, pursues truth no matter how difficult. And I just want to make the case by way of almost an extended application that love pursues truth in three different ways. And before I tell you those three, I just want to tell you just one more story, and then I'm going to get to them. When I was in high school, I played basketball a lot, and we lived in a home not too far from here. Um, we had a wooden basketball hoop, and uh, I got a big splinter from trying to get the ball before it bounced off the pole and went down the driveway. And I remember it was, it was almost like an inch long, and it went deep into my hand. And I do not like splinters. I think I'd almost rather... Uh, fall off my bike racing than I would get a splinter. I don't know why. I just don't like dealing with the pain of them. And so, and that was true when I was a little kid. And so I actually left the splinter in because it went so deep. I'm like, I don't want to actually go in there and with a needle pull the skin apart. You know, that's kind of some of you are getting a little, you know, stomach turning a little bit. And so I, I, I left it in there for a little bit. I'm like, there's got to be a better way to deal with the pain that's in my hand than just to take a needle and start doing like personal surgery, right, on my, on my hand. That's not going to work. And what we found was, now I'll be honest, I didn't handle this the right way, so all the medical professionals in the room just take a breath for a minute because I handled this poorly. I'm not dispensing medical advice by any stretch. I'm just telling a flawed story, okay? Um, so what I did do is I got some ointment, I forget what kind it was, and a Band-Aid, and I began to, over the next couple of days, um, let that ointment kind of rest on that. My hope was simply that I wouldn't have to deal with the pain of it and somehow it would either dissolve and magically go away in my bloodstream, I don't know, uh, or that it might just like fall out or just be easier. Oh, one day I'd wake up and there it is, I'll just pull it out and there it would be done. Ultimately, I think that's what happened is that it ended up drawing this little splinter out um, as, as it kind of, you know, nestled in there and that ointment kind of drew that that way. And in a way, that's the picture I would like to argue that Paul will make with this idea of love. 
that, that love is almost like that ointment that gets applied to a little band-aid and gets put over our heart and, and draws out the painful stuff that's in all of our hearts and the painful stuff that's in all of our worlds and the painful stuff that ex can exist in between us and even in my own life and in the relationship that I have with God. That love, love rejoices in the truth, but it doesn't delight in evil. It doesn't delight in letting something stay in. And so it kind of warms us, warms our heart to look at things that otherwise we would prefer not to look at. And so I want to encourage you this morning as you think about love, love not delighting in evil, but rejoicing with the truth. This application in terms of three um, spheres of influence, if you will, I think is incredibly powerful for me. This text is richer than maybe I first thought it was and deeper than it is for a child, certainly in an adult world. And the first, so the first sphere I want to talk about is this this morning, that love, love pursues truth in me. Love first pursues truth in me. Now here's, here's where I'm going with this. That um, one of my, I've come to terms with this fact that one of the most important things that I must do is come to terms with um, my tendency to separate good and bad in me, and maybe good and bad in you, but let me talk about me for a minute. Um, I can, on my good days, I can see only the good in me, and I don't see the bad in me, and what that does for me is it allows me to judge other people because I'm not like them. Love can also sometimes just see the bad in me, and on those days, then I can get depressed and discouraged because all I see are the things that I do wrong and the ways that I'm hypocritical and flawed. And I tend to separate in my own heart, and maybe you do too, the, the good and the bad that exist between, between us. And when we can see the world in good and bad, we can um, idealistically think about one another that way. But it starts, for me at least, within my own heart. And I love the way Henry Cloud puts it this way. He, he writes it this way. He said, if we do not have the ability to tolerate and deal with the simultaneous existence of good and bad, we cannot successfully deal with and live in this world. For the world and we are precisely that, good and bad. I remember it wasn't too long ago when some of you know our story, our family, one of our family members got into serious legal trouble. And as our family was going through counseling in just trying to process the serious trouble that, that he was in, we were recalling around the room um, the good memories of him and our family. And yet facing, staring down the ugly evil of what he had done. And we're almost like in our Charleston room moment of like, what do we do with this? We have these good stories and we have this bad evil what of that? To which the counselor said, can you allow the good stories to be good and the bad stories to be bad? And her point was, we are these people. We are this combination of this. And what do I do with that? How do I handle that? What's my functioning? And here's what we often do. If this is true, that there's both good and bad in me, and I want you to picture it this way, it's almost like all of us have... Um, two persons living inside of us, an ideal person and a real person. The ideal person is all that we wish we could be when things were going amazingly awesome. It's all of our habits in place, our future picture of ourself, you name it, spiritually, financially, relationally, economically, whatever you want to call it. The real self is where I live all the time. By the way, the ideal self sends the real self messages all the time. It tells you that you're not good enough and not measuring up when you fail again and look at stuff you shouldn't look at. 
When you eat stuff you shouldn't eat, when you judge when you shouldn't be judging. The ideal self is constantly speaking to the real self, often in condescending, condemning, judgmental terms. How do I deal with the ideal and the real? And here's what, uh, here's what Cloud has to say on this one again. He says this, that the split between the ideal and real is the one major reason, is one of the major reasons Christians struggle. The church often stresses such high ideals that many people feel they can't be human and still be Christian. And I don't know if you've ever felt that way in honesty, that what the church might require of you in terms of your morality, your ethics, your consistency is truthfully so high that at the one hand, it's aspirational and encouraging to be called to something high and great because no one likes to be called to something small and simple they can do without thinking. And yet at the same time, it is such a stretch sometimes to imagine yourself being the one who's the incredible prayer warrior like you've always seen or heard that your grandmother used to do or that Martin Luther used to do. Very difficult to imagine yourself being that benevolent, being that free of your things to give to people, being that patient with your children when they're going crazy. And your mom or your aunt or your great-grandmother was always that way, and you are never going to be that way. What do you do with that ideal and the real? And what I've come to terms with is that the, in the ideal and the real, your tone, the way that you handle yourself, the way that you speak to yourself, sounds like self-talk, it's not. If Paul, what Paul says is true, that there's now no condemnation, therefore, for those who are in Christ Jesus. When the ideal condemns the real, what we get are people who deny their badness, who hide their badness, who live in split personality roles with their badness. They allow guilt and shame to control their badness. They don't allow, listen to this, they don't allow love to draw out their badness because condemnation doesn't do that. What you need is the tone of love. What you need is love to draw out the truth, love that rejoices in the truth, love that doesn't delight in evil. We don't delight that there's a splinter in my hand. I don't delight that I keep looking at these things. I don't delight that I keep eating this. I don't delight that I get mad at my children. I don't delight in that. But instead of hiding it and condemning it from my ideal self, I let love sit on that for a minute and draw me to rejoice in the truth, which is in my heart I have a Charleston. My life and yours is both beautiful and evil at the same time. Love doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices with the drawing to the truth with me. Love pursues truth in me. Love also pursues, I'm going to put it this way, love pursues truth with you. Love isn't just about me coming to terms with myself, although I think it is. It's also about me seeing you and you seeing me. This has to do with matters of justice. If the world is bad and good, when I see the badness of this world, I can't turn a blind eye to it, which is why I'm grateful for the work of the Together Initiative Network. We can look out and see that there's housing insecurities here in our area. We can do something about that. We can look around and see that only 62% of our third graders are reading on, on grade level. 
we can do something about that. We can look around and see that there's food insecurities in our area. We have the factory market in there. We can do something about that. Those are things that love draws us to, to see the truth of our society and say there's things that need to be done there and that is right and good. To do. At a relational level, love also says, I'm going to rejoice in the truth, so I'm not going to be happy. This is going to be hard. I'm not going to be happy when you fail, even if I don't like you. The truth is, I want to be happy when you win. I don't want to relate in, to you in gossip. I don't want to begin to bring you down, because love pursues the truth, not gossip, not lies, not mis, uh, you know, misrepresentations. One of the major ways I think that we can struggle today and and how we relate to one another is around information and misinformation. You've seen it over and over. I don't need to recount it to you. A lot of us have become divided over the past couple of years because some people believe this and some people believe that. And the people who believe this don't like the that's and the that's don't like the this's. And then we struggle with who's over here and who's over here. And I want to share with, something, share with you something, something that's very maddening to me. <laughs> how about that? Isn't that great? I came to church and I heard something that made him mad. In 2006, here's, it doesn't really make me mad, it just, it, it does make me mad, it makes me frustrated. Anyway, in 2006, the University of Michigan and Georgia State University, um, 2006, just get that date in your mind, that was a long time ago, generally. Uh, 2006, um, these two universities brought together a study, they had 30 people in two different rooms, and in the one room here, they took um, fake newspaper headlines, and what they said to this group of people was uh, weapons of mass destruction were found in Iraq. That was basically the message. Now, what they did then later is they brought to the same group of people corrected news headlines in which they said weapons of mass destruction were not found in Iraq. Now, the best record that we have is that the second thing is true, that weapons of mass destruction were actually not found in Iraq. So what do you think happened to this group of people who read this information first, that they were found, and second, that they weren't found? Now here's how the, the researchers put this. They said, when beliefs have been totally refuted, people, I'm going to fill this in a minute. Don't say it out loud. But what do you think, how do you think people would respond? Here's how I want to, this sentence to finish. When beliefs have been totally refuted, people get in line and think the right things. But here's what they said. When beliefs have been totally refuted, people fail to make appropriate revisions in those beliefs. That is maddening to me. <laughs> what they're saying is, even when you were to convince, even if you were to present evidence that is true, if somebody doesn't believe it, they're not going to believe it. It doesn't matter what the truth is, they're not going to believe it. And if you're a mom, you know this is true. <clears throat> you got kids, you've told them before, don't do that. They're like, it's going to be fine. You're like, don't do that. I'm telling you, it's not going to be fine. It's going to be fine. It's not going to be fine. And they're going to do it anyway. It doesn't matter if you give them 18 pages of evidence for why you think it. No, if they're going to do it, it's going to get done, and then they're going to get into trouble. And you're going to be like, I told you so, but you can't say I told you so, but you kind of can at some point in your life say, I told you so. This is the way it is, and this is frustrating. Like, I just wish that we could say, you know what? You think they, they were found, and you think they weren't found? Well, let's, let's just look at the facts. Let's just get the evidence and find out. But the truth is, if people have come, and their conclusion was, the people are already walked in the room thinking that there were, when they heard there weren't weapons, it made them even more convinced that there were. <laughs> Like, what's going on? 
Here's, what I, here's why I bring this up, because how am I going to relate to you in that reality? I want to make the case here that what is relational and not rational moves us. That's why I say all of that. That I don't move you and you don't move me by what's rational, but by what's relational. Meaning, I step toward you in relationship. In other words, love. Love draws me relationally to you. You disagree with me, I disagree with you, so what should I do? Fight you with evidence? No, 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 no. What's relational, not rational, is going to move us. I love the way Abraham Lincoln said it a long time ago. He put it this way, I don't like that man. I must get to know him better. I don't like him, so i got to sit down with him and listen. i got to let love draw me into you. Love doesn't delight in evil. It rejoices with the truth, and the truth is I want to know who you are. I want to get into your heart. I want to hear your story. How do I relate one to the other? Love pursues truth with me. Love pursues truth with you. And I just want to say finally this morning that love pursues truth with God. Now, each of you, your story about who God is, is is vastly different based on your background and your experience. Some of you feel very distant from God. Some of you are are here, and you feel um, disciplined. You feel um, close to God by, uh, well, you may not feel close to God. You just, you're... (laughs) You're here because your parents brought you here. You're here because it's a habit to be here. You're here because, you know, if you weren't here, it would cost you more. Or maybe it's Mother's Day after this and you need to be here for mom, whatever it is. But you have, there's a distance, there's a disconnect, there's a performance for God. There's a where was God when it hurts moment. There's confusion about God. There's uncertainty about your new lifestyle and wondering, will God accept it? Will he not? There's all kinds of stories about what the truth is with God and your relationship to God. And I'm just saying love pursues truth with God. Love forces us to say, you know, I want to know the truth about God. In my simplest way to put it, I'm just going to leave it here. I believe this fundamentally about God from the scriptures, that God created you and me with incredible value, incredible value, that at your core you're made in the image of God and have great value, that we're also sinners and have good and bad in all of us, that God, through his love, came to our world, sent Christ in a time and place history to live and die and raise to life again so that by believing in him, we may have eternal life with God. If I can summarize what I see, broad stroke about the truth of God in scripture, this is what I see. Incredible value, we're deeply flawed. God in his compassion is drawing us by sending Christ. Through faith in Christ, we can have eternal life with God. Now, underneath all that are all kinds of stories that you have, but I just want to encourage you to pursue truth with God because that's what love pursues. Okay, so I want to ask three questions, and then I'm going to wrap it up with a super, super short story. Let me ask you this question. Is there anything this morning as you're processing this idea of love? Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. Is there anything that you need to be honest with yourself about? As you look into your own heart and your mirror in yourself, Is there anything that love needs to draw out? Not condemnation. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That includes condemnation from your ideal self to your real self. There's no condemnation. Is there any way I need to be honest with myself and let love, like that ointment, draw out the evil, the ugly, the sin, the constant failure that I've been trying to hide, or maybe you've been trying to hide to be guilty, to the shame, the frustration that no one else knows about. Condemnation will keep that hidden. And you may yet for years still try to figure it out yourself. But I'm just telling you, love warms our heart. Love allows us to feel safe enough to get rid of the evil and feel the call of God to know the truth. Is there anything that I need to be honest with myself about. 
Secondly is this, is there any pursuit of truth I need with or for others? Are the people at my work, at school, in my family, and I'm looking around saying, I'm ignoring this. I'm turning a blind eye to that. I know they're struggling, but frankly, I'm too busy with my own things. Do I need to pursue truth with or for others? Because love does that. Finally, this question, do I need to pursue truth with God? I don't know where you are in your relationship with God this morning. And it could be that you're distant for whatever reason. And I just want to ask you, what does love invite you to do in that space? That love invites us to know God for who he really is. All right, finally, let me say this, and then we'll wrap it up here this morning. Dan White put it this way, and I, and I love his summary of it. He says it this. He said, we all accumulate nicks and cuts from the journey of life. Someone at some point steals from you, taking a measure of hope, a portion of joy, a feeling of peace. Someone you've loved moved away. Friends you've cared about have stopped caring about uh, caring back. Leaders you've looked up to broke your trust. Someone you've let in close mistreated you. You feel that? He says this, you have scars. I know I do. Fear is forged in the bowels of this hard world. So we look into the mirror and see our eyes. They are tired, showing the weight of cynicism. This is a necessary starting point to look into a mirror honestly. Have you ever looked into a mirror like that? You feel the weight of your cynical eyes. You stand maybe in the room like I did in Charleston and are tired of all the bad and evil and just think it's destined to keep coming. Why even hope in the good and the beautiful? Why even allow myself to love, to hope again. See, love rejoices in the truth, and the truth is, at Charleston, it's ugly. Deep injustice. Groups of people deeply wronged. And it's beautiful. In the middle of all of that ugliness. And the same is true for me, and the same is true for you, and the same is true of our relationship with God. And I just want to encourage you today that love doesn't delight in evil. The way that it doesn't do that is it engages it. It tells the whole story of it. It rejoices when the truth is told. It takes our cynical eyes in which we look at the mirror and say, yeah, I've had a lot of pain. So have you. Yeah, you have. I mean, look at that honestly. And let love draw me to know God, to see you, and to accept the good and the bad in me so that I can rejoice in the truth of who God is. In my mind, there is no greater love than a love that can allow us to reconcile with ourselves, with each other, and with God. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance this morning to step back into your word and to see this ancient text, this ancient idea that love doesn't rejoice in anything but the truth. And while the truth we can acknowledge is hard to find and identify sometimes, I pray that you would help us this morning, personally, 
to let love win over condemnation as we look at ourselves, to let love win over our cynicism as we look at one another, and to let love win over our past experiences of pain and hurt with you. Because love pursues truth in how we relate to ourselves, to one another, and to you. So Father, I pray that you would help us to be honest and tell the whole story, all the good stuff and all the bad. Help us not to hide it, to ignore it, to guilt our way over it, to be shamed by it, but to find the place of no condemnation that we can lovingly accept the mess of this world because of the love that you have shown us through Christ. So Father, we thank you for this day of Mother's Day and that kind of love that we've seen demonstrated so often in this world. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.